Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, I've come to a conclusion. What's that, Mike? Just like one of the movies we're talking about today, we are almost famous. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> true, yes. Does, you know, we got we got this podcast and people listen to it and there's a, a pretty good amount of listeners, but it's not like we can't walk down the street with peop- without people accosting us. So I feel like we're almost, maybe maybe if I'm being honest, we're more like almost, almost, almost famous, but I'm going to stick with just being almost famous. Yeah, we're tickling almost famous. <laughs> right, exactly. But you say, you know, as we walk around every street though, we are like that. We're always there around every corner in every ante room as inevitable as the listener's guilty conscience, just like the other thing we're doing tonight, the shadow. There you go. Boy, that's right up That's right up your alley for intros, isn't it, Phil? Oh, yeah. It's always got to be, you know, the shadow knows. <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. We are talking, obviously. We're going to do After the Endings tonight for The Shadow and Almost Famous. And, Phil, what else do we have on tap tonight? We've also got our top 10 favorite movies from 1963. Yes. Yes. Some good movies that year, I think. It should be an interesting list. Yeah. There, was, there were some lots of good movies. Yeah. And, and a few movies as well, which uh, I'd, I realized I hadn't seen. So uh, Yeah, definitely. More to add to the never-ending list. <laughs> right, exactly. All right, well, we've got our, our – it's dealer's choice today, Phil. Do you want to kick off with The Shadow or with Almost Famous? Let's go with The, the Shadow. All right, that sounds good. Okay, then. Well, uh, with that in mind, Mike, do you want to give us a rundown of what happens in The Shadow? Sure thing. So, The Shadow, 1994, directed by Russell Mulcahy, starring Alec Baldwin, John Lone, Penelope Ann Miller, Ian McKellen, Peter Boyle, and Tim Curry. And uh, I kept I kept the synopsis fairly short. I think it's kind of a—I don't think it's an overly complicated movie plot-wise. Yeah, yeah. So, during World War I in Tibet, an American named Lamont Cranston sets himself up as a brutal opium lord named Yin Ko, until he meets the mystical Tulku. After seven years of training with the Tulku, Cranston returns to New York as a crusader for justice. He acts as a wealthy playboy by day, vigilante superhero The Shadow by night, with the power to cloud men's minds and twin 45s. He also has people that he saved acting as his agents. He meets Margot Lane, played by Penelope Ann Miller, and helps save her father, Professor Lane, played by Ian McKellen, uh, from Shiwan Khan, an ancestor of Genghis Khan who also has mystical powers and needs Professor Lane to build a humongous bomb. Khan and the Shadow have a showdown, which results in Khan getting a giant shard of glass impaled in his head, which removes his psychic abilities. Lamont Cranston and Margot begin a relationship, and he continues to fight crime as the Shadow. Excellent. And that's that's the film. Yeah, nicely summed up. Thank you, thank you. So, Phil, why don't you take us into your day after? I certainly will. Lamont Cranston begins training Margot in martial arts, hypnosis, and other skills to help her on the path to become a crime fighter. Cranston, as the Shadow, continues his fight against crime and builds up his network of agents around the city, so he always has information of what's going on. The crime rate in New York does stay steady, but the Shadow helps stop many major crimes and takes down a number of crime bosses, which causes disarray in the various gangs. Cranston and Margot's relationship grows, and a few weeks after the battle with Shiwan Khan, 
Cranston is on patrol as the shadow when he hears screams and a gunshot. Rushing to the scene of the crime, Lamont Cranston is stunned. He sees a tall, familiar-looking figure standing over a body and the figure is talking to a woman. The figure then says, You are safe now. The shadow has saved you. Cranston is confused. And that's my uh, day after. <laughs> I'm sure he is. I like it. A little phantom shadow there, an imposter shadow, if you will. Mm, yes, a faux so shadow. A f- yes. Uh, a shadow of the shadow. There you go. Uh, but uh, that's my day after. What's going on with yours? All right. Well, uh, Lamont continues to fight crime, and he's making a difference. The city's crime rate has dropped thanks to the work of the shadow. Then one morning, as Lamont and Margot are having breakfast, the headline on the paper catches their eyes. Shadow Task Force Formed, the paper exclaims. Oh. As Lamont reads the paper, he learns that the city's new DA has just transferred in from Gotham City, and he's got a strong hatred for vigilantes mm. after a masked vigilante there dismantled one of his biggest cases by providing contrarian evidence to his own findings. <laughs> he's come to New York to try and rebuild his career, and obviously he plans to build it by bringing down the shadow. Meanwhile, Professor Lane's proximity to the massive bomb seems to have altered his body in strange ways. Seems he suddenly has control over metallic objects, like (laughs) some kind of magnet. Hmm. (laughs) That's the day after. A little reminder that uh, Professor Lane was played by Ian McKellen. No no reason I'm mentioning that, just... Just throwing that out there in case any of you want to know. No, very good. I like that. Some nice callbacks to uh, various other things, which all fit in quite nicely, though, with what happened in the first film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thought that'd be fun. Oh, very good. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens there. All right. Well, meanwhile, let's see what's going on in your immediate aftermath. Okay. uh, Lamont spends as much time as he can chasing down this fake shadow, but he always misses him. He discovers that the other shadow's methods are escalating, with more criminals being killed. He also finds out that some victims have been injured by the other shadow, with warnings to take more care while out on the streets. Margot's training is going well, and she has been out on patrol a few times. She feels exhilarated after her first fight. She stopped the mugging and tells the person she saved that her name is Shade. Ooh, I like that. Thank you. Uh, She hadn't quite believed Lamont's story of a doppelganger. It didn't seem to make much sense, even though the things that she had seen in the past. But on one quiet night... She sees a figure, the shadow. She goes up to talk to him, but he runs. Margot chases him over some rooftops and asks why he ran. He remains silent and then attacks Margot. It's a fierce battle, but Margot realises that, that it is not Lamont, as he's not as skilled a fighter. She manages to rip off the scarf and is horrified to see there is no face behind it. Shade! A voice cries out behind her. She turns and sees the real shadow. She moves back and they look at the faceless figure before them. Ooh. That's my immediate aftermath. Intriguing. Mm. Is it is it the blank from Dick Tracy? <laughs> no, it's not. I didn't think about that, but no, no. <laughs> Your big bad guy is Madonna. That would, be, yeah, actually, <laughs> that would probably be a little bit disappointing. No, no, I didn't go that way. I did think about it, but no. But, uh, <laughs> what's going on then with uh, your magnetic menace and the person from the DA from Gotham City? Ah, but but who is the menace? We shall see. Ooh. Okay, well, Lamont continues on as the shadow, but his efforts are thwarted at every turn. The shadow task force seems to know his moves before he makes them, turning up every time he does. He usually manages to stop a crime, but as soon as he does, he finds himself on the run from the task force, made up of dogged, hard-nosed police officers. The lead policeman, a man named Elliot Ness, seems to be particularly incorruptible. As Lamont's frustration grows, his mental defenses begin to crack. Before long, his Yinko persona comes back to the fore. They want to make the shadow a criminal, he proclaims to a terrified Margot. I'll give them exactly what they're asking for. Then he grins and says, wait till they get a load of me. (laughs) 
Meanwhile, Professor Lane has started to gain control over his magnetic powers, and as he does, his confidence grows. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Oh, I like it. Just a little tease with the Professor Lane, who was played yes. by Ian McKellen, if I haven't mentioned it yet. <laughs> Why'd you keep saying that, Mike? <laughs> uh, no reason. I just like Ian McKellen. Because <laughs> he was Gandalf. He does have a magnetic personality. <laughs> he certainly does. <laughs> All right, so that's uh, that's that. Let's hear then your uh, long term. I want to hear about this faceless shadow. Okay, well, my uh, long term, I think it's a little bit longer than my usual ones, but uh, don't worry, it's not too long. That's okay. Okay, chapter one. <laughs> 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 the false shadow got away, but after some careful study, Lamont determines that the figure was actually a tulpa, a psychic emanation or manifestation made a reality. He had heard of such things during his time in Tibet, but had never witnessed them. He then hears news reports of this fake shadow killing innocents. He's getting worse. Trying to determine where it came from, he goes to speak to Sherwin Khan, but he realises that that is a dead end. The Khan knows nothing. One night, while Cranston and Margot were sleeping in their apartment, is woken by a strange sound. She gasps in horror as she sees a strange black cloud rising from Cranston. It slowly congeals into the form of the false shadow. Margot's scream wakes Lamont Cranston. He feels weak and at first cannot move. He then sees the shadowy form above him and his reactions kick in. What follows is an intense battle. Margot leads the fight to give Lamont time to recover. Eventually he gets up to speed, but then they also notice the false shadow is fighting better and he keeps improving. They eventually knock it down and Cranston, realizing the truth, turns to Margot and kisses her. There's only one way to finish this. It takes a moment, but then Margot says no before slowly nodding. The false shadow begins to, to rise. Margot and Lamont hug each other and kiss for the last time. Margot distracts the figure while Cranston runs as fast as he can to the balcony. The figure moves towards him, but it's too late as Cranston dives off the building. A few seconds later, the false shadow disappears. Margot drops to the floor in tears. Later on, she tells the police that someone had broken into the apartment and during the scuffle, Lamont Cranston had fallen to his death. For a couple of weeks, the agents of the shadow realize they've not heard anything from him. There've also been no sightings of him in New York City and the crime rate slowly begins to rise. But then whispers go through the criminal underground. The shadow has returned. The agents start hearing from him again, and he seems even more dedicated to the never-ending battle against crime. After the end of a long night, the shadow returns home. Removing the costume and dropping the illusion, Margot falls exhausted into the armchair. She sips a glass of whiskey and slowly raises a toast to a portrait of Lamont Cranston. A single tear runs down her cheek. And that's my long term. Oh, very nice. I like it. Thank you very much. Very cool. Emotional, powerful, and still gets that hero in the end, you know? That's yes. that's pure comic book goodness. That's it. There'll always be a shadow. That's right. But uh, that, that was mine, but what's going on with yours? Okay, well, as lightning crashes around him, the shadow stands atop the Brooklyn Bridge, laughing maniacally. The city burns below, and the rain begins to fall. The Yin Ko persona has completely replaced any trace of Lamont Cranston's personality. Then suddenly, something appears in his vision. As he focuses, he realizes it's a man who seems to be floating in front of him. Lamont pulls his twin 45s and empties both clips into the man. But instead of explosions of blood, nothing happens. As he looks more carefully, he realizes that all of the bullets are floating in midair. The man in front of him waves the bullets away, then removes the purple helmet covering much of his face. Lane, the shadow exclaims. Lamont, my boy, Professor Lane says, it's time to end this. Lamont leaps at Professor Lane, but with another wave of his hand, Professor Lane uses the iron in Lamont's blood to freeze his blood flow and render him unconscious. Then he uses his powers to gently carry Cranston to the ground. He brings him back to the shadow's lair, and with Margot's help, they begin the long process of rebuilding Lamont's fractured mind. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, and then we, we, thank you. We do have an after the credit scene. 
Oh, going on. So, a year later, the sun sets on downtown Los Angeles. Before long, the sound of police sirens rings out, cutting through the din of the city below. From above, a long laugh is heard, and criminals throughout the city feel like someone has just walked across their grave. The man in black signals his agents, and as he makes his way to the street, his car arrives. The shadow is back, and this time he's got a new city to protect. Oh, excellent. That's the end. There we go. I thought, you know, he probably had to get out of New York after everything that happened there with the DA and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, other cities need protecting too. That was, uh, no, very good. I like that. And good having uh, some kind of magnetic, I'm not sure where that came (laughs) from, but uh, that's good. Yeah, it just sort of popped into my head. Yeah, brilliant. (laughs) All right, very cool. So that is The Shadow. Phil, do you have any shadow trivia for us? I certainly do. Uh, The Shadow made his debut on radio in 1931 but was the third person narrator of mystery stories. Uh, fans liked him so much that they asked for some adventures starring the shadow himself. Uh, and so Walter Gibson was hired, who was a magician and former ghostwriter of Harry Houdini, and he wrote a monthly series of pulp mystery novels, and he went on from there. Uh, also, the film itself, the finale was meant to be longer, with uh, Khan taunting Cranston with images of his past in the Hall of Mirrors, but an earthquake destroyed some of the sets, so they, they had to change that. Uh, Sam Raimi wanted to adapt and direct the film, but he was denied the rights. Um, Peter Boyle uh, was in the film. He played a taxi driver in the film, and he also played a taxi driver in the film Taxi Driver. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but that's the, that's the shadow. Very good. Yeah, I should mention, I meant, I meant to mention this earlier, but obviously we are aware that there is a rich history of works featuring the shadow, both in radio plays, novels, comic books. Uh, so obviously there, there are a lot of sort of after the endings to choose from. But in our case, we went strictly for you know, following up the events of the movie itself. So Yeah, stuck with the film. A little, a little late disclaimer. Yeah, but I, do, I do like the film, though. Oh, I enjoy it quite a bit. I actually just watched it uh, probably about a month ago um, for the first time in many years, and I had a lot of fun with it. It really, I think, it holds mm-hmm. up pretty well. It's it's fun to see Alec Baldwin before he was just doing comedy. You know, back when he yeah, was still yeah. kind of an action hero actor. And it's, it's just got lots of different elements, and uh, the whole pulp style works well. Yeah, and the special effects are, are pretty good, actually. I mean, obviously they're a little dated, but there's some neat some neat effects that they do. There's a scene where his shadow gets pinned to the wall, and he sort of has to climb out of it. It's it's it's, it's fun film. It's a good, pulpy, superhero noir, uh, and it's it's definitely worth watching, I think. It's always, uh, I always whenever it's on TV, I always uh, give it a watch. Definitely. All right, well, then let's move on then to uh, our second film for today, and it is Almost Famous. Phil, why don't you tell us what happens in that film? Yes, Almost Famous, uh, yeah, from the year 2000, was uh, written and directed by Cameron Crowe and was based loosely on his uh, his life. But we start in 1969 with William Miller, played by Patrick Fugit, uh, who thinks he's 13 years old, but he finds out from his sister, played by Zoe Dachanel, and his mother, played by Frances McDormand, that he's actually uh, only 11. Um, because of the con- his mother's a bit controlling, his sister leaves home, but gives him all her rock albums. So he starts to listen to them. Then we fast forward to 1973, and William wants to be a rock journalist, and he talks to Lester Bangs, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, who tells, who likes his work and asks him to go and review a Black Sabbath concert. He has problems getting in, but he meets a band called Stillwater. They chat, and he gets in with them. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine, not knowing how old William is, asks him to write a story on Stillwater, so he travels with them and meets uh, Penny Lane, played by Kate Hudson, who's a groupie, or band-aid, as she calls herself. Uh, William interviews everyone in the band, except for lead guitarist Russell, who's played by Billy Cudup. Russell keeps putting it off. Uh, William becomes part of the band's inner circle. Various things happen. Drugs, sex, rock and roll. William saves Penny from an attempted suicide, and he ends up uh, writing his article. But Russell ends up telling the magazine's fact-checker that it's all untrue, which crushes William, 
and so William and his sister return home. Russell ends up calling Penny, asking to meet her, but she gives him William's address, and as Russell knocks on the door, William's mum tells him to come on in, has a go with him, forces him to apologise to William. They sit down, William gets his interview, Russell tells Rolling Stone that the article's true, and it runs as a cover feature, and Penny buys a ticket for a flight to Morocco. And that's almost famous. A very nice summation, actually. Thank you. Yeah, it's one of those ones where not much happens, but a lot happens. Yeah, yeah, I know what yeah, you mean. Yeah. It was a tricky one to like sum it all up without missing big things out, but uh, that's uh, that's the basics of the of the film. Yeah, yeah, good job. Do you like this film, Phil? I, I really do. I I just like the whole the whole style of it. It's it's you get a good feeling of the time it's set in. Uh, some good characters and it's the whole behind the scenes of what's going on with the rock band. I always get the impression everybody involved making it had a good time making it as well. Right, right. Yeah. What about you? What do you think of it? Yeah, I, I love it. I think it's the last great film that Cameron Crowe made. Yeah, you know, it was his follow-up yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to Jerry Maguire, which is one of my favorite films ever. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had high expectations and it didn't let me down. But then after that, uh, he never quite seemed to find the same footing again. But he had a run in the 80s and the 90s that was just astounding. And this this is part of it. So, uh, uh, yeah, I do. I really enjoy this film. I like it's, I like the world that's in. I like the actors. I mean, really great cast. And, uh, yeah, it's a fun film. Yeah, I mean, it's good as well. There was uh, lots of familiar faces, but not, not enough to, like, sort of pull you out of it. You just buy into the characters and, and what's going on. It's right. Really good. Yeah, good film. Yeah, exactly. Okay, then, but that's what happened in the film. What do you have happening after the ending? Okay, well... William expects his life to change after the Rolling Stone cover article runs, but it doesn't, or at least not in the way he thinks. On some level, he's expecting fame and fortune to follow, but that's not how life goes. Instead, he gets assigned to write a follow-up. His editor tells him that if he can deliver another cover story, he'll hire him as a full-time writer despite his young age. William looks at his choice of assignments. The magazine wants profiles on a number of up-and-coming musical acts, including Thunder Road, Brass Tiger, the Dirty Flirty White Boy Band, Cincinnati, Arrow Tool, Cheap Date, and Lead Balloon. <laughs> <laughs> I had fun with those. <laughs> Some good names. I like thank, them. Thank you. But William decides to focus on somebody even more unknown, a singer-songwriter named Lewin Davis. Lewin almost broke out in the 60s in the folk scene, but his career flagged and he ended up out of music. Now he was trying to make a comeback in the rock and roll scene, and there was something in his songwriting that really spoke to William. So he gathered up his tape recorder and notepad and headed out to Wichita, Kansas to meet the man whose life he would soon change. And that's the day after. Oh, very good. I like it tying in with that. Yeah. little, yeah, yeah. Uh, And you know, I don't tie into the to the Coen brothers easily, but yeah. I thought there was a good opportunity for a crossover between almost famous and inside Lewin Davis, which I know is Yeah, a, I didn't I didn't think of that. That's good. Thank you. It wasn't a big film, but I know it has it has its fans for sure. Mm. Yeah, I like that film, yeah. I'm not one of them, but it has its, <laughs> it has its fans. But he was played by Oscar Isaac, who I do really like. So if, yeah, you, yeah, if you're yeah. sticking with me in the ending here, when I mentioned this guy, I just pictured Oscar Isaac in your head. Oh, that's good though. Thank you. Well that's my day after. How about yours? Okay. William ends up staying at his mother's for a while. It's all been a bit emotional. The members of Stillwater are also in a bad place. The events of the past few months have brought to light the problems between them all. They decide to take a break from touring and from each other. Penny boards the plane to Morocco and finds out that Anita, William's sister, is the flight attendant on the plane. They get talking as the flight progresses. William's story proves to be a success and Rolling Stone ask him to cover some more concerts and they also set up some more interviews for him. And that's my day after. All right, I like it. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah just, I just thought, just move things on a little bit and just things flow. Everybody would want to take a deep breath and uh, relax after what happens from the film, but who knows what will happen next? Right. No. The shadow knows. Yeah. 
I, th- I think it's very in keeping with the, the spirit of the film. Okay, well, what's going on then with, uh, with your immediate aftermath and uh, Lewin Davis? Well, three months into Lewin's tour, William sits in the back of the bar and watches the spindles in his tape recorder spin as he captures the sound of Lewin's soulful set. There's a brief commotion at the door, and William looks up to see a face he hadn't expected to see, Penny Lane. She looks more beautiful than ever, and William rushes up to her and gives her a big hug. He brings her to his table, and the two of them sit and get caught up. After the Sweetwater experience, Penny went to Morocco and found herself. She'd been back in the States for just two months, and she'd never been happier or healthier. She hadn't even been to a concert in all that time. She'd just come in here because she'd been passing by and heard the music coming from inside, and it spoke to her. After a few more minutes, Lewin's set ends, and he eventually makes his way back to William's table. William introduces Penny and Lewin to each other, and the three of them sit down to eat dinner. And that's my immediate aftermath. Okay. Mm. More to come, though. More to come. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it, though. Thank you, thank you. All right, how about your immediate aftermath? Okay, then. uh, Penny rests and recuperates in Morocco. Being away from the band is good for her. William's sister, Anita, is staying with Penny for a few days, realizing who each of them were on the flight, plus their love of music, led to a friendship. But as the days go by, it develops into something more, a relationship. Lying in bed one morning, Anita laughs and says to Penny, I'm just thinking about what my mother would think about this. Penny has also begun writing about her life. Russell, having some free time, takes a good long look at himself. His uh, ex-wife has told him to get lost, and he realises he's not a very nice person. He decides to change. He plays with a few bands and begins writing songs. He decides he won't return to Stillwater, even if the band reunite. William has spent the past few weeks in a whirlwind of concerts, interviews and meetings. His Stillwater article is almost required reading in, in certain circles, and his refreshing honesty seems to be appreciated by most of the people he talks to. He has met some of his music legends, and many of them have heard of him. He is living the dream. And that's my immediate aftermath. Oh, I like it. Get to see William moving forward a bit. I like it. Yeah. Things are going well for everyone. It seems that way, which which leads me to worry a little bit. <laughs> no, go on. What's going on it, with yours? It was then? quiet. Too quiet. <laughs> okay, then what's going on with your long term? William and Penny are standing on the side of the stage at a massive amphitheater in Northern Virginia. Lewin has just walked out on stage, and some 30,000 people all scream in unison. It's been two years since that night in the bar, and Penny and Lewin are now married. Penny is three months pregnant. William's cover article put Lewin on the map, but it was William's other idea that really made him a star. William compiled the best tracks he had recorded on Lewin's tour and compiled them into a sort of official bootleg, which he convinced Rolling Stone to include with each issue of the magazine featuring the Lewin cover story. The tape became an instant sensation, and Lewin had become a superstar over the past year, selling over 12 million copies of his latest album, released just a few months prior. William had become a full-time writer for Rolling Stone, but had a special dispensation allowing him to travel with Lewin and Penny whenever they toured. From on stage, William heard Lewin say, I'd like to dedicate this next song to the love of my life and one of my best friends. This one's for you, Penny and William. As the music plays and the crowd roars, William smiles and sings along, truly happy with his life. Oh, excellent. And that's the end. Oh, I like that. Thanks. I like that. I really like that. I'm glad uh, I'm glad Lewin as well finally, you know, made it. Yeah, he was kind of a sad sack in uh, in his actual movies. So uh, yeah, yeah, this was yeah. this is why it's his comeback. He sort of got his, you know, his stuff sorted out. So now he everybody can all the damaged people can sort of come together and and help yeah. fix each other. No, that's good. It's a satisfying ending. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, let's hear what's going on with your quiet, too quiet, long term. <laughs> don't worry. I don't it's trust all good. you. All right. Yeah. Penny and Anita's relationship grows stronger. They are in love. When William found out, his initial reaction was jealousy, but he realises that he does love them both and he sees how happy they are. William's mother surprises them all 
as she hugs Penny and Anita after they told her, and she says how happy she is for them both. Penny, with the help of William, publishes her book. Not wanting to hurt any of the people she met, she turned it into a novel and changed names. For those in the know, it is obvious who some of the characters are, but there are enough differences to avoid any legal problems. The book proves to be a hit and eventually becomes a movie. Russell becomes a singer-songwriter and has a decent career. The rest of Stillwater still tour, but they never reach the heights they once had. Russell is a much better person. He reunites with his ex-wife and they rekindle their relationship and eventually remarry and have kids. William becomes a well-respected music writer and also writes a few books. He has a few relationships, but nothing serious, but he's quite happy with his life. One day he gets sent an article from a young writer who asks him for advice. William likes his style and tasks the writer to go and review the next band playing near them. William smiles as it brings back memories of his conversation with Lester Bangs many years before. And that's my ending. And that writer's name was Cameron Crowe. Oh my god! Yeah, that's the after the credits. Brilliant! And that's a wrap. There you go. Oh, I like that. Very cool. Everyone got the happy ending that they deserved. I like that. It's uncharacteristic for you, Phil. I know, but it's the film itself. It's that kind of kind of feeling. No, I know what you mean. You want everyone to you want everyone to succeed and be happy in this film. You like the. I like I like the way neither of us had William getting together with Penny. Yeah, I just always yeah. felt like that was one of the, you know, there are sometimes in movies where there's relationships that, um, you know, that they sort of try to build up and then they end up not together and you're happy for that because not every yeah. relationship works or needs to work. Yeah, yeah. There's some, no, I like the relationships in the film. It does work well and lots of them do seem quite realistic, even in the crazy world of rock and roll. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah. All right. Very cool. Well, Phil, do you have some almost trivia for us? Does that mean none? This is all slightly true. Yes, it can't be. It can't be all. It can't be real trivia. It has to be almost trivia. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, most films uh, they have music budgets of less than one point five million dollars. This one had a music budget of three point five million dollars, wow. and it had over fifty songs in it. Philip Seymour Hoffman, who played Lester Bangs, his schedule only gave him four days on set, and he had flu for the whole time. Some of the actresses considered for the role of Penny were Julie Bowen, Claire Danes, Christina Ricci, Uma Thurman. Sarah Polly and Kirsten Dunst and Brad Pitt was going to play Russell but he dropped out and it was then apparently a choice between Christian Bale and Billy Crudup. Hmm. Well I think Billy Crudup is pretty terrific in that role. Yeah he was amazing in it. He was like 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 his character he just he was magnetic and he was just you just couldn't couldn't keep your eyes off him when he was doing it. Yeah. He was a proper rock star. Yeah yeah agreed agreed. Yeah. But that's uh, that's almost famous. Excellent. All right, well, that's going to wrap up our endings, and now it's time to move on to our 100 years of Hollywood in 100 episodes, wherein we take a year from the past century of Hollywood and share our top 10 favorite films. And this week, we are talking about 1963. So, Phil, climb into that time machine of yours and tell us what the world was like back in the early 60s. Okay, 1963, here in the UK, the Prime Minister was Harold Macmillan, and that swapped over to Alec Douglas Home. And in the US, it was John F. Kennedy, and that swapped over to Lyndon B. Johnson. Okay, some of the events in that year were Astro Boy, Japan's first serialized animated series based on a manga, debuted. The Mona Lisa was exhibited in the US for the first time. That must have been a stressful flight or oh, whatever, seriously? on the ship, whatever, carrying, <laughs> carrying yeah. it over. How do you be in charge uh, of security for that? I know. Uh, a little-known band called The Beatles recorded their debut album, Please Please Me. Uh, it took them a single day at Abbey Road Studios. Right, to make history. Mm. <laughs> Coca-Cola introduced its first diet drink, Tab Cola. Martin Luther King Jr., Ralph, Ralph Abernathy, Fred Shuttleworth were arrested in Birmingham, Alabama for parading without a permit. 
And later that year, Martin Luther King Jr. would do his uh, I Have a Dream speech. Right. Valentina Tereshkova was the first woman in space, and she returned to Earth. Zip codes were introduced by the U.S. postal system. The Great Train robbery took place in the U.K. Lamborghini was founded in Italy. Uh, JFK was sadly assassinated. And the first episode of Doctor Who was broadcast in the U.K. We also had the births of Dave Foley, Steven Soderbergh, Michael Jordan, Jazzy B, Rick Rubin... Vanessa Williams, Quentin Tarantino, Jet Lee, Conan O'Brien, Jason Isaacs, Mike Myers, uh, Greg Kinnear, Johnny Depp, Helen Hunt, Mark Strong, Brad Pitt, Ming-Na Wen, Elizabeth Shue, and John Stamos. A, a wealth of talent. Yes, and we saw, sadly saw the death of Patsy Cline, Aldo Huxley, C.S. Lewis, and Jean Cocteau. All right. Amongst others. <clears throat> But that was 1963. Very good. All right. Well, Phil, why don't you kick us off and give us your number 10? Okay. My number 10 is uh, a film directed by Roger Corman, and it is X, the man with the X-ray eyes. Ray Milland, who uses eye drops to give himself X-ray vision, he sees two things, but then he starts seeing through everything, and it drives him crazy. It's a cool little sci-fi film with a great performance by Ray. Really like it. It's one of those scary ones when you start thinking about the concept, but it's worth checking out if you haven't seen it. Because I think it's one of those probably probably little scene films nowadays, but uh, it's most enjoyable. I mean, I know it's got a big kind of cult following, if you will. I mean, it's certainly a film yeah. that I've heard of, but I, I can't say I've ever gotten around to watching it. Yeah, it's a good one. And Roger Corman always, so it's always worth checking out a Roger Corman film. Yeah, they're fun, if nothing yeah. else. Yeah. All right, good. Well, my number 10 isn't terribly surprising. It is a Disney film, but not one of the animated Disney films. It is a live-action movie, and it is The Incredible Journey, which is uh, about three pets, two dogs and a cat that get separated from their owners and have to find their way home. Um, And, you know, it's a pure nostalgia pick, a movie I enjoyed when I was a kid. They remade it back in the 90s or 2000s. Um, But, you know, it's just, it's it's a kind of a wholesome family film. It's animals in peril. It's got some funny moments and some suspenseful moments. It's uh, it's not a masterpiece, but I enjoyed it a lot when I was young, so it creeps onto my list at number 10. Oh, excellent, a good pick. Yeah, it uh, didn't make my list, but it's, yeah, it's one of those ones where you sort of watch it and you enjoy it and you go, yeah, nice. It's good that you like animal films. There might be a few of them on my list. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, my number nine is Eight and a Half. So, no, so the, the name of the film is Eight and a Half, for those not sure. But it's uh, Federico <laughs> Fellini films. Which is it, films. Phil? Is it your number nine or your number eight and a half? <laughs> oh my god i'm confused now oh my x-ray vision has gone wild uh no it's eight and a half by federico fellini which stars marcello mastroianni and claudia cardinal amongst others and it's all about a famous italian film director who feels his creativity is stifled as he's trying to make a big film and it's he goes through these things meets people falls in love they talk and french it's all beautiful uh, it's a bit of a train of thought kind of film with not much happens, but people talk and look and look beautiful, smoke cigarettes and be all French and cool. Uh, but that's my number nine. Good pick. Uh, as we know, the, there's a, a lot of gaps in my filmology when it comes to the sort of French New Wave stuff. And uh, that is one I'm obviously familiar with, but have never gotten around to watching. Yeah, it's one of those ones where you sort of, you've you got to be in the right kind of mood to watch it because you could put it on if you're not in the right mood. You're just not going, oh, what the hell is this? Right, but, right, right. Yeah, but it's, if you're in the right mood, it's a good It's a great film. Well, my number nine is uh, pretty opposite of that. And it is one of those aforementioned animal movies, though. And it is Flipper. Starring Chuck Connors, uh, another favorite from when I was a kid. It was sort of, I think, you know, I grew up in Florida and I feel like you sort of had to like Flipper if you grew up in Florida. Like the dolphins were everywhere at SeaWorld and all that stuff. You know, I don't know. It just seems like yeah. it was part of the culture. But I mean, basically, it's like Lassie, but with a dolphin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, again, not a masterpiece, but a fun film and, and something I enjoyed in my childhood. And uh, so that's my number nine. Cool. I remember the uh, the Flipper TV show was 
we shown it was on when I was a kid. Yeah, I used to watch that much yeah. more often than I watched the, the movie, but uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it was on all the time. Like I said, you sort of you sort of grew up surrounded by Flipper when you lived in Orlando. Yeah. <laughs> cool. No, it's a good pick. Uh, my number eight. Uh, make sure you get this right. Is uh, it's a mad, 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 mad world, which is a huge, big ensemble comedy directed by Stanley Kramer, starring Spencer Tracy, Sid Caesar, and lots of other actors and comedians of the time. All about them trying to, all these playing a group of strangers who are trying to find this stolen money, uh, and it's just loads of set pieces, loads of sketches of them all just going round and round and round. It's hilarious. Loads of different things going on. You can, it's kind of film you can dip in and out, and you just, it's just lots of fun and some great performances and great actors and great moments. Very good. Well, my number eight is a film that I have a sneaking suspicion will be higher up on your list, but it is Jason and the Argonauts. Greek heroes, monsters, myths, and a little bit of awesomeness by Ray Harryhausen. Uh, really, what more could you want? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a seminal film. It's, it's influenced a lot of, of filmmakers, and uh, it's a lot of fun. So I enjoy it. I, I suspect we might hear from it again. Uh, okay, but uh, that's, I know it's a good choice. Uh, I had a feeling it would be on your list, but uh, my number seven now is uh, Charade. Or Charade, as us Americans would say. Yeah, uh, stars Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn, along with Walter Matthau, James Coburn, and lots of others. Uh, it's all about, it's a romance, spy, thriller, action kind of movie with lots of fake identities, who's who. Uh, you're not sure where it's going and what it's all about, but it's lots of fun with some great actors and great performances. And even if you're watching it, you still got to pay really close attention to know exactly what the hell's going on. That's uh, that's my number seven. Very good. This is one of those films that I I'm like sure that I saw, but I just couldn't remember it enough to be able to put it on my list. Even though I'm I know I must have seen it at some point in the past, but I think it's been a long time. Yeah, it's because I think lots of all the famous people in it, and it's they've all been in similar kind of films, right, or you know, right, exactly. you, you sort of get mixed up a bit with them. But yeah, but that's that's my number seven. Very good. Well, my number seven is a Disney animated film, uh, and it is The Sword in the Stone. And, uh, you know, it's King Arthur. It's the whole Excalibur and all that told as a, as a kid's tale. And I think that was really like most people, or at least many people, that was my introduction to the legend of King Arthur, which I've always found, you know, somewhat yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Um, so it's it's obviously a lighter take on it than the uh, than some of the more serious movies about King Arthur. But I do have a soft spot for it. So it makes it onto my list at number seven. Uh, I knew it'd be on your list. It almost made my list because I, re- I really do like it, but just didn't quite make it. But, but uh, that's that's a good pick. My number six is The Pink Panther. Blake Edwards directed it, and it's got uh, David Niven, Peter Sellers. And yeah, David Niven is a jewel thief, but he's also like an English playboy. And Peter Sellers is Inspector Clouseau trying to catch him. And, you know, with hilarious consequences. <laughs> we, all, we all know Pink, Pink Panther films, but this one is probably, it's not just... The Peter Sellers show. There is like the big story going on and what's what's happening, and it's 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 a good you know crime story, but also very very funny. Indeed, it is good choice. Well, my number six is Lord of the Flies, based on the book we all read in high school by William Golding. And uh, I know some people didn't didn't like like the book or like this movie is kind of dated and you know it's it's black and white and kind of old. But I, I do like it. Uh, it's a great story. I think the Lord of the Flies is a terrific book, and it's a uh, really just sort of this primal story. And I, I've always been drawn to tales of survival, and I thought this was having read it and watched it at a young age when it was you know mostly. The characters are boys similar to my age, maybe a little younger than I was when I first read it. But, yeah. um, you know, it's it's still it still holds up as a pretty good film uh, and I do enjoy it. So 
That's Lord of the Flies. No good pick. I don't. I don't remember ever seeing the film. I read the book, but I don't there's a '90s the version, which yeah, I, yeah. I like a little bit more, just because it's it's, you know, it's a it's a more modern update on it. But the the original holds up. I think it's 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 decent at least. Uh, yeah. So I need to. I need to. Yeah, I need to get that one watched at some point. Yep. Or one version of it anyway. Right. Okay, my, my number five is a James Bond film. It's from Russia with Love. Very good. So it's it's Sean Connery as Bond, and we've got Robert Shaw as the assassin trying to kill him. Uh, I quite like it because because it also it follows on from Dr. No, because Spectre trying to kill Bond because of what happened at the end of Dr. No. So I like all that, the fact that it does tie up a bit more as opposed to lots of other Bond films. Uh, but also Robert Shaw is just great as the... Uh, as one of the bad guys after him, some great set pieces. Uh, we also find we we also had uh, Desmond Llewellyn debuting as Q, and yeah, it's a Bond film. We all know Bond film, from, but from Russia with Love, it's uh, one of one of the good ones. Indeed, it is. All right, my number five is uh, probably going to be a little controversial, but I don't care. I'm putting it on there anyway. Uh, it's another nostalgia pick, but it is The Nutty Professor, starring Jerry Lewis. It all, that almost made my list because I do like that film. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Yeah. Uh, Jerry Lewis, I mean, I'm not the first person to mention. This has been articles written on this, how he was like, I mean, one of the biggest box office stars in the world yeah, back huge. in like the 50s and the 60s. And then he sort of like, I don't know what happened. Like people turned on him basically, and he was like box office poison. Um, but I always liked Jerry Lewis as a kid. I always thought he was really funny. And this was one of the first movies that I really remember seeing him in and just absolutely loved Loving. Um, and, you know, I, I admittedly haven't seen it in a while. I know his character is kind of silly, but it's just good slapstick comedy. And he was a comedic genius back in the day. So I don't know why his career went the way it did, but I will stand by The Nutty Professor as a fun movie, uh, good for kids and, and, and good for adults. So that's my number five. Excellent. An excellent choice. But as I say, it almost made my list, but not quite. But uh, I'm glad it made yours. Uh, I think it's probably one of the more accessible Jerry Lewis films as well. Yes, definitely. Probably hasn't quite dated as much as some of his other ones have. Right, right. But uh, my number four is The Haunting, uh, a horror story, well, a horror film based on The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. And it's just, I just think this is one of the scariest movies of all time. It's uh, black and white about a group of people invited to this house for a paranormal investigation to look around this haunted house. And it's just got, I remember watching it uh, probably about 15 years ago. And it just creeped me out. It made me jump, but really scary. And I was, I was thinking, oh, it's a 1963 haunted house film. It's not going to scare me, but oh my gosh, it's, it, there's no gore or anything like that. It's just the whole setup, the way they act, the little things they do, the way it's directed, the way it's edited. It's absolutely brilliant and superb sound design as well, which is great. But it's, uh, I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it, but it's just... It scared me well, <laughs> so much. Now I definitely want to see it. I have not yet watched that one, so it did not make my list, but I will uh, definitely add it to my list because that sounds like a, a good one. Yeah, just watch it. I won't say anymore. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> well, my number four is a film you just mentioned, and it's no surprise, of course. It is From Russia with Love. We all know I love me some James Bond. Um, it's it's an interesting James Bond film. It's not. It's one of the least James Bond-ish Bond films. So it's, yeah. You know, in terms of like the gadgets and the humor, it's much more of just kind of a straightforward, action adventure but you know Sean Connery is great as James Bond it's got some good action sequences I do certainly enjoy it and it's still good enough to make it to my number four yeah it's probably it's got probably more of a more realistic feel compared to later film later Bond films as well yes yes yeah. definitely I agree but no I knew it'd make your list so I'm glad it's there of course of course okay my number three is Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds very good uh, which we did an after the ending fallback in episode 17 way back when but I love the whole, we talked about it then, but I just love the whole style of it, the story, the mystery of it all, the way nothing's explained. And just again, it's it's quite scary. It's quite spooky when you think about what's going on. 
the performances on a can be a touch manic in places, but it does fit the style of it. And whoever you know the bird wrangler was did an amazing job because there's an awful lot of birds in there. Yeah, but uh, that's my number three. Very good. My number three is another film that you have mentioned. It is The Pink Panther. It's a great comedy. I mean, I don't think anyone who listens to this list is going to be surprised that The Pink Panther made it onto both of our lists. You know, it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's a hit film. It's a funny film. It's a well-loved film. Uh, so it made it on my list. And it made it pretty high because I do really enjoy those films, especially the first couple. Well worth checking out for some of the people who probably haven't seen it. It's probably quite a few people out there have gone, oh, Pink Panther, I know what that is. But right. this one might have passed them by, you know, if, uh, especially some of the younger listeners. But uh, it, is, it is very, very funny. Indeed. Okay, my number two, you've mentioned it, and you were right. It is Jason and the Argonauts. Mm-hmm. All the reasons you said, it's big, epic, you know, story of Greek myths, full of cool Ray Harryhausen moments, some some poor acting by some of the main characters, but, you know, you don't you don't really care because you give, you see these films for Ray Harryhausen's creations and the bit when, when the skeletons are called up, you know, the music as well, just it's done, done perfectly and... I, I feel that's one of the best fight scenes in cinema, just because it's just so, wow, the skeletons running after them and they're just all going around and it just it's done so well. And then, of course, you have Talos, the big bronze statue of Talos. Yeah, so many good bits. Yeah. I love it. And that's my number two. Yeah, I knew it would be on your list. I wasn't sure how high, but I had a yeah, feeling yeah. it would be a lot higher than it was for me. But, uh, you know, honestly, if I, had, I haven't seen it in a long time. If I had seen it more recently, it, it might have been higher because it, it is a lot of fun. Yeah, it's and it's it's nice that it is still watchable. You know, it's some of the films from that, from the 60s, the early 60s, you watch now and you're going, oh, God, but this one, it's still lots of fun to watch. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, well, my number two is a great war movie. Didn't make uh, not a lot of war movies make my list necessarily, but this is one of them, and it's a little different from the norm. It is The Great Escape, starring Steve McQueen, um, and it's uh, it's a really cool film, I have to say. It's uh, you know, obviously, it's about these prisoners during World War II, American soldiers who plan this escape from a Nazi camp. And it, it's a long film. It's a couple. It's over a couple of hours, uh, and it's you know serious subject matter. But it also has a lot of humor in it, which I really appreciate. It's it's a film that has kind of some some varying tones throughout. You know, sometimes it's very serious. Sometimes it's kind of almost silly or campy. But uh, it is really fun. And when the escape happens, the the tension ratchets up. There's a great motorcycle chase scene, and um, it's just a really cool film. Steve McQueen was such a great actor. I love watching him. And uh, the Great Escape is one that I I didn't see for a long time, even though I know it's extremely well love but i i did finally watch it a few years ago and i absolutely love it so the great escape check it out if you haven't seen it that's an excellent choice and it is my number one i had a feeling it might be since it wasn't on your list yet i I love the film yeah it's just it's got many happy memories of uh, like weekends when it was raining either like my grandparents caravan or a home and it's on the tv and you're just watching it and it's just as you say it's it's a mix. It's a mix of different tones. It's for, it's great for for kids watching it because you you're learning stuff about what things that really happened, but you're also having a laugh. And then you're going, "Oh my God, that's really happened. What's happened to him?" And then, as you say, the tension rises and just um, you got you going, "Oh, who's going to get away?" And things like that. And then when uh, the German officer's at the bus and he you know he slips in an English word, and then the guy goes, you know, responds with English, and then he, he realizes he's messed up. And so many good moments. And you got like you got the cast though, as well as Steve McQueen, James yeah. Garner, Richard Attenborough. Charles Bronson, Donald Pleasant, James Coburn, David McCallum. It's just a stunning cast, a great story, some great moments. And you're just, uh, you're just invested in every single character and you want them all to get away. So when 
some of them are caught you're just absolutely gutted and when you see some of them just fall apart because there's stress and the worry of whether they'll ever get home it's just it's a brilliant film and it's yeah it's my number one very good very good well we weren't too far off on that one yeah 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 but my number one is a different film it has been on your list though i don't think it'll be a big (laughs) surprise to most people it is alfred hitchcock's the birds uh we all know i'm a huge hitchcock fan and it's not my favorite hitchcock film but i do really enjoy it and it's just you know it gets extra credit for being alfred hitchcock i mean honestly i could have you know gone easily one or two with the birds or the great escape they're both great films um but i've seen the birds many many times and it's it's one of those movies I can always go back to and watch and you know I just I love the special effects and I love the, the the you know the the like you said the bird wrangling and some great performances even if they are a little over the top but it's a it's a really fun film and I just yeah I love yeah. watching a Hitchcock film because every time I watch it I see something new yeah it's very yeah every time you're right every time you watch it there's yeah there's lots of things in the background there are things set up which you don't realize on the first couple of viewings but it's yeah right so that's uh, that's my number one is the birds an excellent choice I did uh, had a feeling it would be and definitely in your top two at least but yeah yeah. yeah. Yeah, no big surprise there. But you know, some good films. 1963 was a pretty decent year for films. Yeah, yeah, not bad at all. All right, well, that is going to wrap up our top 10 list, and it's also going to start wrapping up our episode. But before we go, Phil, why don't you tell people what they can expect to hear next week? Yes, yeah, so next time we're going to be doing After the Endings for Better Off Dead and Con Air. One, now, and we should mention that Better Off Dead, A, one of my favorite movies of all time. B, we're going to have a special guest as well, so that's exciting. That's true. We're going to leave you in suspense as to who that is, but... We will have a special guest. It'll be pretty cool. So definitely come back for that. Yeah. And what else, Phil? Yes. And we'll also be doing our top 10 films of the year 2000. All right. A little turn of the century. Although most times when you say turn of the century, people think of, you know, back in the olden days. Yeah. Yeah. It's the turn of us century, at least. 18 years ago. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's what's happening next time. All right. Very good. Okay. So there you go. That is us for this week. As always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Uh, let's go with almost... No, let's go with The Shadow. I messed that up. Yeah, I realized that. I was looking almost famous on the thing. Uh, let's <laughs> Damn it, start... Phil. How am I supposed to sell spontaneity know, if, yeah. if you can't get it right? Uh, why don't you just give me a quick... <laughs> do you want to take us through it? Yeah. Uh, what are you laughing at over there? So just me messing up so early on. <laughs> Okay. That's not even the earliest we've messed up, let's be honest. No, that's true, that's true. From above, a long laugh rings out, and crim... I already said rings out. From a long laugh... From a, from a long laugh? Oh, boy. <laughs> be funny on demand, damn it. <laughs> I'm so demanding. <clears throat> <laughs> you can always go... You can always go to Perviota. Yeah, yeah. Like it when demanding you are. <laughs> there you go. That's the Pervinota we all know and love. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait for the inevitable lawsuit from uh, Lucasfilm or Disney as they sue us for turning one of their most beloved iconic characters into a, you know, running joke in which he's a pervert. No pervy nova am I. Any similarities purely coincidental, <laughs> are they? <laughs> yeah, that would fly in a court of law. <laughs> mm, I think so. <laughs> Use the law, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so now he's a, now he's a lawyer. <laughs> yeah false lawyer <laughs> master yoda esquire attorney at law it's like a new tv show dun, 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 dun. object object do i and he slams his fist down on the table if problems with jedi you have contact me <laughs> sith law <laughs>
Oh man, I really want to make a commercial now where Yoda <laughs> is a lawyer. God, that'd be so awesome. Truth, you can handle not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Mike Spring. Hold on. <laughs> Did you forget your line? Oh. And I'm Phil Edwards. What are you depressed, Phil Edwards? No, I was gonna write. I was gonna read something out, but I can't remember what it was, and I can't find a piece of paper. <laughs> It was a That's... quote from The Shadow, and I can't find okay. it now. But uh, so, yeah. It's just like, I got confused. It's like, first you don't answer, and then you're like, and I'm Phil Edwards. Like, <laughs> the easiest line as well, going, that's my name. Right. You sounded so sad to be Phil Edwards for a minute. I was like, we can't be Pervy Yoda all the time. Mm, Edwards, Phil, are you? <laughs>